0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. The chapter, verse 29, and uh, this has been rather a staccato series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but it's concluding this evening. So, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, "'Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing.'" but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? In your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Well, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as I say, in a staccato fashion for a variety of reasons. It's not been the most coherent series of expositions that I can remember. Uh, but we have been studying what is, uh, I think, by any standard, the most coherent sermon that was ever preached. Most of us who are preachers are not able to preach with this kind of clarity or with this kind of structure. And uh, it has an amazingly clear structure and stunning clarity, and underlines for us the fact that the reason people do not grasp the gospel is not because it is complex or complicated, but because we are spiritually blind. And interestingly, there is probably no passage in the New Testament that makes this paradoxically clearer than the Sermon on the Mount. It is by every confession a clear section in Scripture. And yet, of all the passages in Scripture with which people have some familiarity, it's also clearly the most misunderstood. And last time, when we were looking at the beginning of chapter 7 and Jesus' words about judgment that are uh, some of the most frequently cited verses from the Sermon on the Mount, we noted how often uh, if as Christians we say something even marginally critical of something else they will they will leap out of somebody's mouth. Judge not. I happened to look at the letters column in uh, one of our Scottish newspapers during the course of the week, and uh, someone was writing in, complaining, of course, as uh, many letters today do uh, in the light of what is going on in our national church and saying it is time the church got with the action. It's interesting, isn't it? When the church actually gets with the action, the press criticizes the church, and when the church doesn't get with the action, the press criticizes the church, and the church should get with the action and modernize its morals and not be so judgmental because Jesus said, judge not. And we saw when we were looking at the first section in Matthew chapter 7, what a disastrous misinterpretation of Jesus' words that is. Because this whole chapter is about the necessity of judgment. Jesus is warning us that we are not in the place of God to condemn others finally. And so, we need to be very cautious about what we say about others' spiritual condition. But then it's Jesus who immediately says, if you do not exercise judgment, you will be in grave spiritual danger. You will end up, as he says here, casting your perils before swine. So, it's the very same Jesus that says, do not judge in the sense of do not play God with other people's lives, who immediately says, you will make spiritual shipwreck if you don't engage constantly in judgment, in assessing things. And that, as we noticed last time, is the big word of chapter 7. Jesus has been proclaiming the presence of the kingdom of God in his own coming. He has demonstrated the power of the kingdom of God in the miracles of restoration and healing he has done, and he has been preaching what it means to live in the kingdom of God as citizens of that kingdom. And uh, I've suggested there are, there are really three big words that summarize the sermon. Chapter 5, the word fulfillment. All that people longed for in the way of blessing in the Old Testament is now fulfilled in Jesus' people. And not least, obedience to the law. You have heard that the, the rabbis and their tradition have taught you this, but. Uh, let me explain to you the the real significance of the law Jesus is saying in the second half of Matthew chapter 5. So, if you want to have an easy way of remembering the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 is about fulfillment. Chapter 6 is about the Heavenly Father. And it's, I think, hard perhaps for us to grasp the wonder of this. Uh, uh, We had a note of it in prayer this evening, the wonder of having access to God and calling Him our Father, uh, that was very special for these people because uh, you turn to the left-hand side of your Bible, you will not find a single person in the whole of the Old Testament coming to God and saying, O oh, Heavenly Father, not a single person. It's only as the, the wonder of God's heart is open to us in Jesus Christ that it is possible for us to come to God, as uh, Matthew chapter 6 teaches us to do in prayer and say, Our Heavenly Father, and as Jesus teaches us. One, once that is clear, then two snares in our lives begin to be dissolved. One snare is the snare of hypocrisy, of feeling we need to pretend to be Something other than we are. Because if He knows what we are, then we are, we are delivered from the fear of anyone else knowing what we are. And the other snare is the snare of anxiety, that we should be crippled with the uh, anxiety about what is happening in the world or what is happening in our lives. Because the Heavenly Father cares for his children. He feeds the birds of the air, he dresses the flowers of the field, and you are far more important to him than either of these. And then this third word, the word judgment. And judgment's a word that's used in in different ways. We, We mean quite different things when we use the word judge. Uh, it's, like many of our words, it's it's an elastic word. It can be used negatively. It can be used positively. It can be used in a variety of different contexts, and it's clear from all the little sections in Matthew chapter 7 that we we are meant to see the importance of having eyes to discern reality and wills to commit ourselves to a gracious and godly response to that reality. Now, what then is Jesus teaching us as He comes to the climax of the sermon? How do do sermons usually end? They usually end with application. The difference between a lecture and a sermon Is that whereas a lecture instructs the mind, a sermon is intended not only to instruct and illumine the mind, but to call us to a decision, to change our lives, to touch our affections, to bow our wills, to transform our lives. And this is the section now, as Jesus comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when he is calling this. A crowd of people to make important decisions, to, to come to judgments on what Jesus has been preaching because both their life in time and their destiny in eternity, Jesus says, depends on how you respond to this teaching. This is a colossal claim. And it's clear as Jesus goes on uh, that we have not misheard Him when we say that a person's eternal destiny depends on how he or she responds to the Lord Jesus. There is an exclusivity about the claims of Jesus, and he underlines that here. So, in verses 13 and 14, these well-known verses about the narrow gate and the broad way that leads to destruction, Jesus is summoning his hearers to exercise judgment, good judgment, in relationship to the choice that they make. He has been presenting the power of the kingdom, and they have seen it in his wonderful works. He's been presenting the lifestyle of the kingdom that is so, is so utterly real and normal and how life really ought to be. And now he, like Moses in the Old Testament, he says in response to this good news from God, there are only two possible ways for you to respond. So you judge, how are you going to respond? And he, he puts it in picturesque terms, doesn't he? He says there are, there are two doors. It's like what was that children's program there used to be in? There was the two doors, you know. And uh, one door, he says, is very narrow. Now we need to understand us as Christians in the 21st century precisely because this is one of the hate words that is used about Christians. You are too narrow. Response? Jesus was very narrow. There is a narrow gate, and there is a broad gate, a small gate and a big gate. And you now, says Jesus, you are the judge of which gate you will go through. Take a look through The narrow door, he says. What do you see? Well, he says, the way is narrow. Now, he says, take a look through the the big gate. It's it's like, like, you know, I remember they used to say about late call, the average intelligence of the person who is listening at 1145 in the evening is the IQ of a seven or eight-year-old. Well, Jesus bends down to the seven or eight-year-old you know, the little ones can see this picture, can't they? There's a broad, big gate, and there's a, there's a narrow gate. And if you look through the broad, boy, that's a broad road. And you can, you can sense, eh, you can sense the way people's minds think. Big is beautiful, broad, that's where I want to be. Narrow Big, there's many there, says Jesus. You know, fascinating these criticisms of the Christian faith in the modern age. You're too narrow. Don't you know the Sermon on the Mount? You should be broad and big, and the way should be broad. Now, what do you need to do to make the right decision? What do you need to do to make the right decision? Well, Jesus tells us, you need to look not at the size of the gate, nor at the breadth of the road. You need to look at the destination. Because, he says, the narrow gate, the narrow way leads to eternal life. And the broad door and the broad way leads to destruction. And that's a great key. That's one of the key differences for the Christian, isn't it? And it's a key difference for living the Christian life. What's the difference? The Christian is not looking at the size of the door or the breadth of the way, but where the road is leading and what the destiny is. And the Christian is thinking backwards from the final destiny into the present life. And you see, when that happens, when you stand on this side of these gates, then the gospel gate looks very narrow. Why? Because you can't bring all your garbage in. You've got to leave the stuff outside. But the broad gate, bring it in. Just God loves you the way you are and you can stay the way you are. The truth of the gospel is God hates you the way you are because He loves you. He hates the way you are because it's leading you to destruction. And if you're going to come in as you squeeze into Jesus Christ, as you embrace the cross, all the garbage in your hands falls out of it. That's what repentance is, isn't it? And you, you go along the narrow way. And uh, you live for the Lord Jesus. And the people are looking over from the broad way. And they're shouting things over to the narrow way. And they're saying, look what a great time we are having but what are you doing? You're you're blinkered. You're not not listening to this. Your eye is upon the eternal destiny because the broad road, says Jesus, leads to destruction. Now, I think it's very important for us to realize that, that this is the essence of Jesus' application. My eternal destiny is settled here and now in response to the teaching of Jesus. That is one of the things the contemporary world hates about the Christian gospel. The contemporary world wants Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, New Age, all the rest of it to be many versions of the same thing, some a little better than others. The thing that that criticism cannot get its hands round is that Jesus himself claims to be the exclusive way to heaven and to glory. And that's why at the end of the day the world hates the gospel. That's at the end of the day the reason the world resists Jesus, because it cannot stand that exclusivity of the Lord Jesus. Why? Why? Because surely we've all got the inalienable right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and to deciding how we will get to heaven. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm the only way to heaven. So intolerable. Why is it intolerable? Because we have the wrong starting place. That's why it's intolerable. Think of, uh, well, we seem to more dentists in this congregation than anything else. This may be the most dentist congregation per head of membership in the whole of the world, for all I know. Um, but say we had, uh, we had a research scientist in the university who discovered a, an a perfect cure for Ebola that could be used tomorrow. Would you want that to be turned over to the Monopolies Commission so that somebody in a gray suit would say, we can't release this until it's a level playing field? if you had Ebola, would it worry you that there was only one drug that would cure you? You would say, give me that one drug. And you see, that's where we make the mistake, isn't it? Um, We think we have a right to heaven. We think we have a right to make our own way to heaven. And we don't realize we are desperately sick that our hearts are corrupt, that we are alienated from God. As one of my favorite lines in all Christian theology, in the middle of Anselm of Canterbury's great book, Cur Deus Homo, why, in essence, why did he need to become man? And it's a dialogue with his, his monk student called Bozo. And Bozo is not getting the gospel. He, He's saying, why does why it need to be this way? And uh, Anselm comes out with this great line, you know what your problem is, Bozo? You have not yet understood the greatness of the weight of sin. Actually, just in parenthesis, that's why people find the doctrines of divine predestination and election so distasteful. Because they think they've got a right and that God's right doesn't supersede our right. But when you understand the Bible teaching that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are helpless and hopeless, and we're alienated from God, and we're at enmity with God, and we don't love what God loves chiefly, which is His own Son, then, of course, we need to understand that God is the one who takes the first step. And it's the same thing here. If I realize I have a deadly virus and there is only one cure for that deadly virus, all my complaints about someone having a monopoly on the drug will cease. And I will say, Give me that cure. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, There's only one cure. And that cure involves a narrow door, because it really does cure. And so, what has, what has corrupted you and diseased you needs to be left aside as I draw you in. And as you walk the narrow way, you keep your eye fixed on the destiny. That's why we stumble and fall as Christians, isn't it? It's been my experience as a a minister of the gospel. But when people stumble and fall and are in my room with their heads in their hands, the reason is because they weren't thinking about the destiny of their decision. Their judgment spiritually was clouded because they looked only at the breadth of the door and the breadth of the way, and they didn't look to where it was going. So Jesus is saying to us in these wonderful verses, there is a judgment that you need to exercise in relationship to your most important choices. Secondly, because that's important to him, he says there's a judgment that you need to make in relationship to the teachers that you listen to and follow. And this is a very important judgment. If somebody says, you mustn't mustn't judge people, then that's that's a recipe for spiritual disaster. You need to be discerning about the influences under which you place your life. And so Jesus says in verse 15, this is verses 15 to 23, you need to be on your guard because there are false prophets. And false prophets don't wear signs saying I am a false prophet. False prophets wear signs saying this is what the Lord says. You just to understand that would help so many Christians. But because somebody says this is what the Lord says doesn't necessarily mean this is what the Lord says. If you're a false prophet, you don't go around saying, I'm lying about what the Lord says. This isn't what the Lord says. You go around saying, this is what the Lord says. That's the reason you need to exercise this judgment, Jesus says, about the teachers you follow. And one of the reasons for that, as he makes clear in in what he tells us here, is because here here are, you know, I mean, these are these disciples, the apostles, they're probably men at most in their early twenties, and they're very young and raw spiritually. And what's true of most of us when we're young and raw spiritually is how easily we are impressed by demonstrations of unusual power and influence. And you see that they say this, these false prophets. He says, we prophesied in your name. In your name we drove out demons. And we performed many miracles. Do you know in the United States of America, if every single Christian watching their television set understood that, they would have saved themselves billions of dollars. Because these are the impressive things, aren't they? And how easily we're swept away. Somebody comes in and uh, he's not like David Robertson at all. He's uh, saying, he's, uh, well, what, what can I say? He he, uh, he does miracles, you know? And you, you come up here and uh, David can slay you in the Spirit. Well, he must be a man of God. Why don't you watch the hypnotists in the entertaining television shows do the same thing? Or oh, here is somebody, and he can make people crawl around and make animal noises. Why don't you watch the television hypnotists who are able to do the same thing? These, think, think, about, think about the magicians that Pharaoh conjured up. Jesus is saying what you need to do is to listen and watch for the fruit of what they are saying. And uh, th- this is actually a very this is a very easy test, actually. He's speaking about the fruit of somebody's ministry in in the lives of the people who are addicted to that ministry. And he's saying, is there there gospel fruit there? He says, because this, you know, this can all be smoke and mirrors. And this is such an astonishing thing for contemporary Christians, that Jesus himself says, look, there are people who will prophesy in my name, and in my name, not in the devil's name, but in my name, do these many mighty works and cast out demons. You say, that is utterly impossible. Read on in your Gospels. There is a man who was a false teacher. He was actually among the apostles. The other apostles had such a good view of him because they were spiritually naive and immature that when he was actually on the way to betray Jesus, they thought he was going out to do some mercy ministry at Passover time. That's how easily they were taken in. And this man had gone out with the other apostles in the mission on which Jesus had sent them, and he was one of those who came back and he said, my, the very demons of hell are subject to us. Jesus, this is fantastic. But do you remember when a very needy woman uh, poured her ointment over the Lord Jesus, and Jesus said, she has done a beautiful thing? Do you remember what He said? He said something very shrewd. He said what somebody would say in the annual general meeting of a Presbyterian church, this should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And it sounded so spiritual. Why wasn't it? Because Jesus said, this woman's done a beautiful thing to me. And he wasn't interested in beautiful things being done to Jesus. And yet he was able to cast out demons. So it was there that there was somebody actually listening to them who would be the very illustration of what Jesus was saying here. And he's saying, look, uh, you need to go and look at the fruit on the tree. What has this ministry, what has this teaching, what has this demonstration of power produced in the lives of those who have received that teaching? Have, has, has the deepest thing in their lives been you know, I would just love to be able to do a beautiful thing for Jesus. Or has it been, wow. Wouldn't it be fantastic to be able to have that kind of power? And Jesus says, you notice here, I mean, it's just kind of amazing what he says. He says, at the end of the day, many will come and say, this is verse 22, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly. Now, notice the words that Jesus speaks here. They're actually unique in the Gospels, although not wholly unique in the New Testament. Look at what he says. Well, of course, he says, depart from me. You never knew me. You didn't trust me. Well, now that I've said that, you know that's not what he said, don't you? What he said fascinated me was this Depart from me, I never knew you. Isn't that interesting? It's almost as though he's underlining the fact that, that because knowledge of the Lord is a big Bible idea, that people would say, Well, I know Jesus, I know Jesus, and Jesus is saying, uh, You know, That's good, but it's not really the important thing. The important thing is whether I've ever really known you. Or if I can put it this way, it is possible to do all of these things, to be be raised to the position of a teacher, a preacher, a prophet, whatever it may be, a leader, and never to have allowed Jesus to know you and that's a kind of different thing, isn't it? We can, I know people in one sense that, uh, you know, when it comes to them knowing me, all the shutters go up. Maybe you're like that. In, in, in contexts where uh, you want to be the master in the situation, and so, so you listen to them, you take it all in, you use them, That you never allow them to know you. And that's the difference. And in a sense, that's the test, isn't it? That's a help to the way in which I make a judgment on the teachers I hear, on the preachers I listen to, on the ministries in in whose context I I place my life. Does, Does Jesus know this person? Is it evident in their lives that Jesus knows this person? Is this a Jesus person? Is this a person whose whose great focus is this desire to do something beautiful for Jesus? Or is this a person who employs the power he has or she has with words and the electric powers they seem to be able to exercise over people's lives, not because they want to do something beautiful for Jesus, but because they want to do something in order to promote themselves. Isn't it interesting that on the last day, and this is so typical, isn't it, that on the the last day as they stand before the judgment seat, of Jesus Christ who died to save sinners, they can't stop talking about themselves and what they have done. And there's nothing of this, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. It's what I did, what I accomplished. You've met people like this, haven't you? What I have done... Look at me. And the fruit of that is not that we want to do something lovely and beautiful for Jesus. So we need to exercise judgment in relationship to the choices we make. Exercise judgment in relationship to the teachers we follow. And then at the end, thirdly, we need to exercise judgment in relationship to the foundation on which We build our lives for time and eternity. And here's this very well-known picture. We were singing a children's song about Zacchaeus this morning. We could sing the children's song, couldn't we? Most of us, the wise man built his house upon the rock and the rains came tumbling down and so on and so forth. And Jesus is saying, where are you building your life? When the storms come, when the final storm of the divine judgment comes and everything that is is inessential on which you've relied, that's given you your identity, that has made you somebody in the eyes of men and women, when all that goes through the sifter and uh, turns out to be the impoverished thing it always really has been. At the end of the day, will you be standing on rock or will you be sinking in sand? It's a, it's a very vivid picture, and of course, it was a particularly vivid picture in in this world. The rain's coming down, the streams rising, the winds blowing, and the house falling with a great crash. You know what is so wonderful about uh, Jesus here in this passage? It's almost He's saying, listen, if if you still haven't grasped what I've been talking about for the last however long the Sermon on the Mount took to preach, let me just give you a picture. There's a big gate, and there's a broad way, and it leads to destruction, and there's a narrow gate, and there's a narrow way, and it leads to everlasting life. And there's, there's a rock in which you can build your life. And there's sand in which you can build your life. Where are you building your life? Because your destiny is going to be determined by it. And it's so interesting, isn't it, to notice that when these, when these false professors come before the Lord, they are talking about what they did and it all collapses. And Jesus is saying, you need to build your house on the rock. And what is that? Well, it's the same from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament. It's beautifully expressed in another song children sing. It's interesting how we love to teach children the fundamental lessons of the gospel. That in later life we forget. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And if you trust, then you will obey. If you have entrusted yourself to Him as your Savior and as your Lord, then Yes, however frequently you stumble and fail, the fundamental instinct of your life will be, I want to do something beautiful for my Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as they left, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And I think the thing that probably amazed them most was at the end of the day, it was also simple in a sense. I was reading again during the course of the week an autobiography of F.F. F. Bruce, a very famous biblical scholar and very influential second half of the 20th century who was brought up in a, in a certain Christian grouping, which I'd better not mention in order to cover the identity of any guilty party in the room this evening. And he, he made this comment. He said, you know, the, the kind of spirituality in which I was brought up was this, that if, if you could actually understand what was said in the message, then there must have been something wrong with it. There should be something something mysterious and beyond you that you didn't quite know where it was the speaker had gone that would leave you saying, oh, he was so deep or he was so high. And uh, Professor Bruce is saying, no, he was neither deep nor high. He was simply confused. But there shouldn't be any confusion with Jesus. Why is there confusion? I mean, this is the most misunderstood sermon that's ever been preached in the history of humanity, bar none. Put all of my sermons together and all of the misunderstandings of all of my sermons, which have been not a few, both the sermons and the misunderstandings, and you don't remotely begin to approach how misunderstood this sermon has been. Do you think it's because maybe people have never read it from start to finish? All they've known is Judge Not or Golden Rule, and they think Jesus is wonderful. But that Jesus is simply someone they've made in their own image. The people who heard him were stunned. You see, there's a kind of double response here. Isn't there? It's just very interesting. very interesting. A double response, which I think is always true of spirit-helped preaching. On the one hand, you're kind, of, you're kind of amazed by how you see it. This is amazing. I can actually understand this. And these rabbis, they've gone on about what Rabbi so-and-so said, and Rabbi so-and-so said, and how Rabbi so-and-so said, and Rabbi so-and-so, you I'm like, I'm like something out of a Tom and Jerry cartoon listening to them. But this Jesus it's so clear. But oh this Jesus, what he says has such a, a weight about it, such a sense of eternity about it that I'm I'm called to the great decision of my life. And we are we are called to that decision. And he's saying, make sure you've made the right judgment. Make sure you're you're seeing things clearly. Yes, the big gate looks so attractive. And the broad way seems to give you so much room. But look where it's leading. And by God's grace, when you see where it's leading then you'll turn to the narrow gate and the narrow way. And you'll notice, as all who go through that narrow door and that narrow way, that at the end of the day, it opens out into the most glorious life and the most glorious world in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that you are a speaking God and that as we are celebrating in these days, you sent your own very word, our Lord Jesus Christ, to speak to us. And thank you that he has spoken so wonderfully clearly. We pray as we, as we think about this great issue that faces us all about which door and which way and which destiny, that by His grace we we may rejoice to go through a narrow door that brings us such a repentance as we we are liberated from bondage to sin and to Satan. And as we walk that narrow way, that we may feel ourselves to be accompanied by the one who is the way and led along that way to the joy and the glory of eternal life. And we pray that you would inject into us a a sense of the, the needs of men and women round about us who are so careless about these things. And we ask in the the great need of our land, as we've already been praying this evening, that in the great need of our land this Christmas time, that you would soften hearts, that you would bring a sense of need to some and save them from the broad way, bring them into the joy of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And for ourselves, we pray, that you would keep us on that way until the day dawns and the shadows flee away and every tear is wiped right out of our eyes and we see the final destination towards which we have been walking all our Christian lives, the Lamb who is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. So, help us to live For your glory in this week as in every week. For Jesus our Saviour's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.